It's time now for all you ever wanted to know. A chance for you to get to know what's going on in and around your community and the fabulous people that make it happen. With On the Land, here's Jack Dawes. Well, once again, good morning. Uh, as you just heard uh, Randy Atkinson talking about uh, uh, the mild weather we're having, uh, it's a great day, and we've got a busy program here. We actually have about three hours of material almost every week, uh, and we cram as much into it as this hour as we can, uh, agriculture-related. Our uh, good friend uh, Harry Siemens is joining us uh, today as we look at the seed industry. But it's uh, harvest time for Christmas tree growers in the U.S. record sales of natural trees. Now that it's a record year for sales. So here in Saskatchewan, uh, uh, we're speaking with Irvin Switzer of Saltcoats. Uh, uh, he's a Christmas tree grower, one of a small number in the province. We asked the question, have the feds lost touch with the western grains industry? And we discussed the follow-up from the recent Fed Prob Ministers Conference. Uh, Cattleman weighs in with our friend Harry, uh, Harry Stephen, and the power of steam, well known and documented, uh, documented rather on the prairies. Of course, uh, farmers and horsepower were first, and then steam uh, came along. Steam is back. Uh, Kevin Hirsch, well known farm broadcaster, uh, also part of XAP, a uh, company which this week announced a memorandum of understanding to commercialize a system which literally steam cleans those nasty thistles. Well, something about the COVID experience seems to be turning folks back to natural grown Christmas trees. Here's a spokesman for the U.S. Christmas Tree Growers Association, Tim O'Connor. We keep hearing stories of, you know, well, I have my usual customers and then a bunch of people who say, what's the first time I've had a real Christmas tree in years or even ever? You know, they've made that decision based on this being a, a very challenging year, and they they wanted a Christmas that gave them something unique to remember. And many people are staying home with their families rather than traveling. So then uh, it turns out that real tree sales in the USA are breaking records this year. Now, a local grower also reports a busy uh, pre-buying season to date, uh, tree buying. I have uh, cut trees on the farm of Irvin and Susie Switzer just west of Saltcoats for a couple of years now. Uh, great folks. Now, last weekend, I found a really great uh, eight-foot beauty of a tree, and then I talked to Irvin. It was kind of a dry spring uh, and so forth. What kind of a year was it for growing Christmas trees? Um, it's been pretty challenging, actually. The last couple of years, it's been so dry. The the trees are getting stressed, and we're noticing uh, browning on them. And I think it's a combination of insects, which are stressing the trees, and then the drought stresses them more and they have trouble recovering so it's a little more challenging to keep them looking good and yeah. healthy yeah what sort of insects attack uh, these evergreens um i think the last what's happening most is spider mites so what's happening is the needles are browning off from the inside out um and it's that stress combined with the drought and the trees aren't able to recover so they're they they start to show it. Mm. So, uh, is there any control measures for spider mites in this kind of an operation? Um, actually, the easiest control 
um, is just straight water washing them down. So we set up our water tank with a with a pump, and we go out. We started this year, and go out every couple weeks and wash the trees down because it's not happening naturally with the rains. Yeah, not enough rain. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So just on that note, about how much rain did you get here? Oh. I'm not sure exactly. I, it couldn't have been much more than a couple inches all mm-hmm. summer. Well, I know one of your neighbors is a a, a crop uh, uh, reporter, so I'll maybe ask him. <laughs> Grant, yes. Yeah, Grant. He would know for sure. <laughs> Grant Laycock. So, so Irvin, then uh, uh, maybe just talk a little bit more then about the husbandry and the care of, of, of growing Christmas trees. Um, well, we get a seedling that's probably... 8 inches, 10 inches tall. We buy the seedlings and we'll plant them in a nursery for a year, sometimes two. It kind of depends on the year. And then we'll transplant the seedlings out into the field. We'll try to water those seedlings if we don't get rains throughout the first year. And then then it's up to Mother Nature (laughs) to take care of them after that. Um, Once they start to get a few feet or a couple feet, three feet tall, then we start to to shear them and shape them and 10 or 12 years or more later then you'll have a Christmas tree <laughs> so it's labor intensive yes yeah. so the varieties there are several varieties now uh, well this one I got in my truck what is that um, that one is it looks like it's a we can go and have a look, a look at it yeah sure that would be great White spruce. White spruce. Yeah. Okay. Hey, well, we'll get back out of the wind here. <laughs> so, uh, so then you have several varieties, obviously, that you grow here. We have white spruce. We have Scots pine and balsam fir. There's a few blue spruce out there. I tried to grow one year, but um, not really successfully. So I don't. I haven't planted any more of those. Yeah. So, is there a particular nursery that uh, is your go-to? Or um, we're a part of. Uh, there's a Christmas Tree Growers Association, just a small group of us in in Saskatchewan, and we pool orders and we get it from a greenhouse uh, just north of Prince Albert. Get all our seedlings. And when does that happen? Um, every spring, we, well, we put we put our orders in actually a year in advance, and then. In the spring, we get the order from the previous year, I guess, basically. I see. And so, uh, how do you start them? I know you're not irrigated here, obviously, but uh, so how do you get them going? Um, it's just a matter of it's a it's a plug yeah. and plant them in the in our nursery and kind of baby them in there and try to get them as healthy as possible before we put them out into the field. Mm-hmm. So are you able to, your nursery pots, are you able to water them, irrigate them? Yes, yeah, we have us, and it doesn't take much room to, you can plant a, we get six to eight hundred trees in a year, and you can plant them in quite a small, small area. Right. So it's easy to water. Yeah. And, and then uh, after that, it's once you get them going, that's Mother Nature's job, the rest? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't have any other means of irrigation out yeah. here, so... Have you ever thought of going that way? I've thought of it, but the <laughs> the expense of it, I, um, I just wouldn't be possible right now. Right. So, uh, can you give us a snapshot of what acreage you grow trees on? Um, 
I'm not sure what's here. There's probably maybe 10 acres of trees. And so tell us then about the the original idea. Aha, maybe we better do this. (laughs) Well, we're... We were moving back home. We were living near Saskatoon and and found this acreage and trying to decide what to do with the bit of land that we had here. And Christmas trees was a a lower cost input, large manual labor input, which I had, and low cost, which <laughs> we didn't have lots of. Like money, most so. of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it seemed like it would be something something fun that we could do here. So that's a conversation uh, just this past weekend with Irv uh, Switzer, uh, Irv and Susie, uh, Christmas tree growers, and uh, a great family, uh, uh, Gillian, uh, uh, Irvin's dad, is, uh, I was, he was there as well. And uh, we've, hard to believe, but we still actually got a couple of weeks before Christmas time, so we'll let you hear more about that industry as we go along. Well, if you want to talk about good old farmer know-how and determination, think about Southwest Saskatchewan farmer Ron Gleim and his Exteminator. It raised more than a few eyebrows when it was introduced at the Farm Progress Show a couple of years ago. Gleim is an organic farmer from Chaplin. Uh, He invented the Exteminator and founded a company called, I'm not sure if they call it Zap, it's spelled X-A-P, I forgot to ask, but uh, uh, publicist Kevin Hirsch is a shareholder in the company. Uh, This week, they announced a memorandum of understanding with the Honey Bee Manufacturing Group. Hirsch says it was never the intention of XAP as a company to get into large-scale manufacturing, hence the connection to Honey Bee. And Honey Bee will help out with the the boom design, need a boom that follows the ground very closely, and they'll also help uh, get all the component parts uh, onto a, a trailer and get a, a trailer organized, and uh, in in return, Honeybee has uh, the the rights to manufacture the retail units when we get to that stage, hopefully in in a in a year or a year and a little bit. So we have a we have a manufacturing partner that uh, can help us out going forward, and uh, we're excited to have that partnership. So. The first exterminator that I saw, and I guess most people did, was that 2018 at Farm Progress Show. Uh, it, the, will the commercial unit look something like that, or is where does it go from here? Well, I think Farm okay. Progress Show. Uh, right. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. Yeah, that's that would be correct. June of uh, of 2019. It, it will, in some regards, the, the 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 unit that we had there was pretty much all enclosed, so you couldn't see the component parts. If you go to the, the website, exterminator.com, we have a, a, a prototype there that you can see running in the field, and you can also see an interview with the inventor, Ron Gleim, who talks about all of the various component parts, the induction electricity generator, the, the water tank, the cooling system, the, the heat exchanger, uh, the, the constant flow pump, and all of the component parts all of which exist for other uses but have never been put together in this configuration to generate high-temperature steam on demand for, for non-selective weed control. So, And, and the, the unit that people will see on the website, it, it looks pretty, uh, pretty unwieldy and, and you know, a, a little bit like a farmer invention, which it is. And, and a lot of it is, is overbuilt and will be downsized and, and, and will have a, a whole lot sleeker look when it, it actually hits uh, the commercial market. But the same component parts will still exist. 
So uh, how wide a, a unit might we end up with? What kind of a swath do you think uh, it, it will be when, it, when it's a retailed unit? Well, we're going to start and target uh, the, the smaller units first, just because they're easy to do and have a, a lower power requirement. And uh, while Honeybee is helping us with the boom and, and the cart, uh, work is ongoing on building a, building a software control system so that with, the, with touches on an iPad, you'll be able to control temperature and electricity and steam saturation and steam flow all from the, the comfort of your cab. So that, that work is ongoing at a, at a different location, and that's separate from, from what Honeybee is, is helping us out with. So we realize that, you know, here we all think about broad acre agriculture and we want to cover lots of acres, but there's lots of applications for smaller units that we could start out with, whether it's orchards or vineyards or even roadsides or even uh, between rows, between crop rows uh, for, for weed control. So, you know, the prototype is, is uh, only a 10-foot unit, uh, but the concentration will be 10, 20, and 30-foot units to start with and, and get them right to start with and then scale upwards from there. So a 30-foot unit sounds pretty small in today's agriculture, and, and especially since you won't be breaking any speed records because you've, you've got to be able to uh, heat up these uh, plants enough that they're, they're going to have the chlorophyll basically explode and die, so you, you can't be going 15 mile an hour. But you, you won't be chasing a whole lot of water because the water use is only 1 to 2 gallons per acre, uh, and you can spray it at, at any time of the day and night. Don't have to worry about the wind being too high or don't have to worry about it. Oh, it froze last night, so I can't spray glyphosate today. So it will have some benefits that way capacity-wise. But I know that a lot of producers are wanting, you know, 100 feet at 5 mile an hour, and, and that won't be the first <laughs> units built. It'll, it'll be the, it'll be the, 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 the 10, 20, and 30-foot units will be the, the first ones that will be coming onto the market. Kevin, uh, as a as a guy who just barely understands the concept of an electron, can you help me understand how the heating unit works on, on the exterminator? Well, I can give a very basic idea. It's sort of uh, induction electricity has been around for a long time, and you have induction ovens or you have induction welders that are able to reach a lot of temperature with a minimal amount of, of energy flow. And it has to do with electricity and magnetism, and that's about the extent to which I know about it. But the, the combination of electricity and, and magnets, you, you can get the most efficient use and the most efficient production of steam. There are other, there are other uh, companies in the world that are trying to do weed control with steam, but they're using boiler units, and they're terribly energy inefficient. That's what induction electricity provides is a very efficient way of, of, of providing high temperature steam for non-selective weed control. That again, uh, Kevin Hirsch uh, and a memorandum of understanding uh, uh, with the Steaminator, the X, uh, XAP, I'll call them ZAP, uh, with uh, Honeybee Manufacturing. Uh, Kevin, as you would uh, well know, is a, uh, a broadcaster. He's also a farmer. Farms uh, over on the west side of the province, north of Swift Current, actually far end of Lake Diefenbaker, and I'm going to sail my boat up to his farm next summer. I'm sure everyone wanted to know that. Well, a merger of four Canadian seed industry organizations 
organizations without the actual farmer seed grower to me seems somewhat puzzling, but such a merger has been declared good to go. Seeds Canada will be made up of the Canadian Plant Technology Agency, Commercial Seed Analysts of Canada, Canadian Seeds Institute, and the Canadian Seed Trade. And they've all got uh, initials or acronyms, if you will. Now, CSTA, that's the Seed Trade Association, includes some farmer-level growers and seed retailers, as well as some heavy hitters in the industry, people like BASF and Bayer. Now, the analysts uh, represent seed testing labs. Uh, CSI, the Seed Institute, uh, delivers accreditation and monitoring, and the Canadian Plant Technology Association supports the intellectual property protection. So that's kind of how it fits together. Seeds Canada plans to include national and provincial seed associations as well as seed growers from across the country. But uh, Jack's question is, without the Canadian seed growers, CSGA, uh, something seems to be kind of out of balance here. The CSGA membership, made up mainly of farmers, I understand, also has statutory powers to certified pedigreed seed. So uh, the fact that uh, several seed growers I approached uh, didn't want to talk to me about it uh, tells me uh, that it's obviously a touchy subject. Nonetheless, uh, uh, it also appears that the Seed Grower Association is wary of domination by some of the big players, both nationally and internationally. So here's our colleague Harry Siemens with reaction from a young farmer from the Wawanisa area, south of Brandon. So we are a seed grower, uh, so we produce pedigreed seed. Uh, so we are a member of the Canadian Seed Growers Association through that. And then we're also a seed retail. Uh, so we are a member of CSTA and what will become Seeds Canada. And then uh, myself, I'm a grader operator and we do uh, conditioning and stuff like that. So we uh, use services from CSI and uh, the seed analysts. And, and so we have... Uh, ties to pretty much all of the organizations that are uh, are involved in the amalgamation and have been involved in the discussion over the number of years. So then uh, you're on one side, one half is in, one half is out. Given that's the case, um, uh, personally I was hoping to see the amalgamation of the whole five organizations, but I think... Uh, there were certainly reasons to not join, and I, I think that uh, given that the CSGA has decided to step back and, and remain on their own, and then the four organizations um, have moved forward and are joining, um, you know, I think they're going to work together moving forward and, and remain strong as a team. I think this is a real positive step for the whole seed industry and, and agriculture as a whole, and I think we're going to... Uh, see some, some real benefits from this. Why would the seed growers, and I understand, I think the, the seed growers are the largest uh, organization out of the five, right? Yes, yeah, they have around 3,500 members, and the others were uh, <laughs> quite a bit smaller than that, even combined. So why would they have stayed out? Well, you know, I think uh, seed growers are really like the independent side of things. They're They've always done done their work on their own, and and uh, and there was some maybe misinformation or some maybe questions weren't answered quite as well as they could have been during the uh, voting process. So 
it's, it's hard to know exactly what it is, and I think that that's where the sea growers now need to step up and, and reach out to the membership and find out exactly what uh, what the membership wants, um, wants of the board and, and CSGA, and, and how they wanted to move forward. Um, so I think they heard the message that uh, they don't want to move into Seeds Canada, and uh, so now CSGA needs to make sure they have exactly what what we want to be for a vision of the future. So that again, uh, Simon Ellis from the Wawanisa area of Manitoba, a little south of Brandon. Uh, um, Harry Siemens on the line with us that uh, spoke with uh, Simon Ellis. Harry, any further comments uh, on that piece? Well, just to uh, to note that uh, in Simon's case, he runs. Uh, he took over the uh, seed business from his father Warren Ellis a number of years ago. Simon is a young farmer, but he basically uh, looks after the seed business called Warren uh, or Ellis Seeds. Yes, Ellis Seeds at Wawanisa. And I've you know I've followed him for for many years on Twitter, and we've had many discussions and. And uh, as he said, initially he would have liked to see all five join, but he could also understand why they didn't. So uh, he was wearing three hats in there. I think he was part. And and the one thing he did say is that uh, you know there were a lot of the uh, on the new uh, Seed Canada, a lot of board members uh, that are seed growers and so forth. So it's an interesting concept. Okay, great, Terry. That was uh, very timely. I appreciate you making that connection. Uh, Harry's going to be back with us later with the livestock producer. You're listening to All You Ever Wanted to Know on the land from The Rock. You're listening to All You Ever Wanted to Know. If you have a question for today's guest, call 783-5160 or 1-855-449-5160. Well, on the program today, uh, we're really busy, and, and because of that, we have two producers today, Jordan Patswald, who is my regular across the, the console from me. We also have a young man by the name of Josiah Poppleton, a uh, silly boy. He's learning the radio trade. Uh, but you can tell right off that uh, Josiah is a pretty solid dude. He's wearing a Winnipeg Jets jersey. Again, other illegal blockades earlier in the year created grain delivery delays, which uh, produced those potential loss of foreign markets. Well, in that context, apparent uh, velvet glove approach to rail blockade has uh, hired uh, people in the industry, people like the Western Canadian wheat growers. Uh, now, it all ties in with uh, last weekend, the uh, Fed Prov ministers uh, met uh, online, of course, and uh, they uh, uh, they discussed but never really made any real changes uh, to the uh, uh, the farm support, the business risks management portfolio, those kinds of things. Uh, Ottawa has offered to increase the compensation rate under agri-stability business risk management programs uh, and to remove a provision called the reference margin limit. Now, the provinces are studying the proposals, but uh, uh, just to further dig into that with someone in the industry, our pal Harry Siemens now with Manitoba cattleman Tom Tykrobe uh, on his views on support for the beef cattle industry. And we have uh, Harry with us uh, on the line. Uh, Harry, just set up this interview for us uh, uh, with Tom Tykro. Well, it's more specifically, he talks about how many producers uh, are still holding back and haven't expanded because they weren't able to 
to get involved with the number of cattle that you need to get involved in the different insurance programs. So he just outlines uh, how he has made it uh, during the last uh, couple of years where he totally went on his own. Let's run Tom Tycrum, Interlake uh, cattle producer and, and past president of the Manitoba Beef Producers. You know that he's grinding the same old wheel, and that same old wheel is pretty wore out. And he's got nothing left to grind until he puts a new wheel on and finds a different way to grind it differently. So in 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 2018, um, we started getting dry, and the gentleman, my my good neighbor, said to me, Tom, I'm not sure we can grow enough feed for you to background your calves this year. I'm not sure we're going to get there. So you may have to find a different place to to put some more weight on your calves if that's what you think you want to do. So then the year went on. We navigated through some negotiating and some feed sourcing. And so, um, you know, by the skin of our teeth, we were able to get enough feed together. And it was costly. It was a little bit more money than we wanted to spend. But we could still pencil profit margin because, because, and only because, we were working with fairly large numbers. So, again, the margins work differently. So you still have the same silage wagon with the same horsepower tractor. You have you don't have any more people working, but yet you're still feeding, you know, an additional 500 cabs with exactly the same infrastructure. We were able to pay a little bit more and still make the numbers work. Again, only because we had the economies of scale. Right. So then 2019 comes along, which is last year. And we had a severe drought, and my neighbor said, there is no way in the world, Tom, that I'm going to be able to grow enough feed for myself, let alone for you. So we will not be able to feed your calves in 2019. Before, leading up to that, I had said to Michelle a number of years ago that I would like to get ready and be prepared in case one year things don't work out at Wayne's and we have to background our own calves. I said I would like to, you know, have make sure we have the the necessary equipment and make sure that we have a shop here so that when things break down we can fix things. And so we built that in two thousand we pre planned and built that back in two thousand and fourteen. And 2019 comes along, we have to make the move. The only thing that we had to add, we had to add a silage wagon to make it work. And it didn't matter to me whether I paid Wayne for feed or whether I could be able to grow the feed or corn. So then we switched over and grew corn. Well, it didn't work out that well in 2019, but, again, luckily, I had told you earlier, we have tools available to us now that we didn't then. And so we had Western Livestock Price Insurance, and we had good old crop insurance. And through those two different business risk management programs, I was able to work with those programs that made that helped out on those shortcomings, right? And we were able to still buy enough feed, source enough feed. We backlined our own calves. We sold them. In the nick of time before, you know, COVID was already in, but we, you know, before the markets really fell apart and before the plant shut down. So we did okay in 2019, in 2019. Then in 2020, this year, Harry, we had an absolutely phenomenal crop. And I worked through my numbers. And what I can tell you definitively, without a doubt, and I'm 100% accurate because all the work that I do here, I put my direct costs in so my, for example, my seeding, my seeding is custom, my cultivating is custom. The only thing that I do here is I harvest the feed myself 
and not even the silage. So on my corn silage, absolutely everything, including the seed that was done, was all custom. So I had it right down to the penny of what I spent. When I figured out what my cost was with the yield that we have this year, Harry, right now I'm feeding my cows for under a dollar a day per cow. I have never even come close to that, Harry. The best we could do the last number of years is in around the 210, 215, 2, well, last year we were probably around the 250 mark. This year I'm under a dollar a day. If I add up my cows just alone, at, at summer is about 90 cents a day, and winter right now, I've just, I just made sure I accounted for everything. I'm, I'm in, in, in the 365 days until we go back to pasture next year, Harry. I'm going to average about a dollar thirty. That's a conversation with uh, Harry Siemens and Tom Tykrobe with a fascinating insight uh, into, uh, well, the whole area of business risk management and, and doing the business of agriculture. Uh, we'll uh, get back to that conversation in another program as well. Uh, because 